Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the local level. I'm Dale Jarvis. And I'm Katie Crane. Hi, Katie Crane. Hello. <laughs> this is um, kind of a new thing for us because we're in the middle of our COVID lockdown still here in Newfoundland. So Katie is working from home and I'm working from home in another town and we're, we're recording this properly socially distanced. Yes. yes. So today we're talking about uh, traditional knowledge on the Bacaloo Trail. Uh, and, and maybe for people who just maybe aren't from Newfoundland or who are from Newfoundland or Labrador and are not familiar with the Bacaloo Trail, uh, Katie, where is the Bacaloo Trail? Where, where does it start and end? Uh, it's the northwestern portion of the Avalon Peninsula. So it, it goes from kind of Holyrood up to the tip of that portion and then back down to like Markland. Right. So it goes all the way up Conception Bay, Conception Bay North up to Greats Cove area and then kind of circles back down around. And it I think it was originally a tourism region, right? And um, and there is a Bacaloo Trail Heritage Corporation, which has been around for 40 odd years and lots of stuff happening. And um, we've been working on this project. Katie, do you want to just explain what you've been up to? I've been trying to get people to fill out our survey so that we can find out who's operating in the region, um, who practices traditional skills, who has traditional knowledge. So anything from rug hooking to woodworking to wriggle fence weaving. Um, and then I've been calling these people and interviewing them, little mini interviews to try and find out a little bit more about what they're doing. And then ultimately, we'll create a public inventory so that we can put these people in like in connection with uh, tourism operators in the region to create a, a sustainable tourism for the Backloo Trail. Right. And if people have been listening to the podcast, um, they may have heard our, our co-worker, Natalie Dignam, who's been doing a bunch of these interviews around the region as well and, and has done a few uh, few interviews. You, you've been doing some of the interviews and feeding her audio. You did one with, um, with a local storyteller, right? You, you did the audio for that. Yes, I interviewed Clifford George. And then when Natalie was looking for like a starting point, I was like, he had some great stories. I thought that was going to be a, a half hour conversation about like fairies and Newfoundland ponies. And instead, I just sat there for about an hour while he told me stories and it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, he's a great storyteller. Yeah. So if you haven't checked out that podcast, uh, definitely go and check that out. And has that been your experience? Like when you phone people, are are some people just great storytellers more than others? Some people are great storytellers. I think it comes naturally to some people. And some people I think are a little bit curious why I'm interested in the thing that they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> that's always the way. I, I find quite often when I'm interviewing people or asking them about a tradition, their, their initial response is, why do you why do you want to know like why do you care about that old foolishness you know uh, that's a pretty common uh, common reaction that I get so you've been collecting these little audio clips where are they going to all end up when when everything is said and done uh, we're going to be putting them on the digital archives initiative uh, with Memorial University right so that's collections.mun.ca for those of you who haven't used it before and it's a um, just an amazing resource there's all kinds of digital 
records there, print and audio and video. Um, I know I use it all the time. Yes. Yeah. I use it all the time as well for classes and for the work we've been doing this summer and just for fun. Just for fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, like late at night, just looking at the digital archives. Reading I, old newspapers. I can't imagine anyone would ever do that. No, definitely not you. <laughs> definitely, definitely not me on a Friday night sitting in my basement um, reading newspapers from 1893. Buy my book. Uh, okay, now uh, we're going to talk about some of the people that we've been reaching out to. So you put out an initial call for people. So some of these people are people who kind of self-identified, right? They, um, they filled out your online survey and said, oh, I have a skill or a, or a tradition. And then you've been doing the follow-up work. Yes. Okay. So who are we going to start off with today? Uh, we're going to start with the, one of the first interviews that I did, which was with Edward Delaney. Um, he is a woodcarver, but he also makes his own knives. Okay. And, how, and he was one of the people that filled out the survey, was it? Yes. You said that you phoned him. He's where? He's north of Carbonier somewhere. Gull Island. Gull Island. Okay. And, and you ended up chatting with his wife. I did. Yeah. She answered the phone and then had to call out for him. So I chatted with uh, her until he was available. And uh, she's a knitter. Yeah. So I talked to her about knitting uh, trigger mitts and how she likes to use every last scrap of yarn. She doesn't want anything to go to waste. And I thought that was kind of interesting considering we're doing sustainable tourism and she's practicing sustainable craft. Yeah, I think a lot of our craft traditions here are based on that. Like our rug hooking traditions are certainly about recycling and people making do with what they they had. So how did Mr. Delaney kind of get started with his, his craft and making knives? Well, he got started carving first and then through that realized that carving knives were pretty expensive and at that point you had to order them in. Right. And he thought well I could just make my own so he uh, he takes um, other knives um, like power saw blades or things like that because they're already tempered steel okay. and he uh, shapes them into whatever he needs for carving he also makes hunting knives he likes to to make his own knives because he can resharpen them he he wants to make functional knives rather than like show knives Okay, so set me up with this clip that we're going to hear. What is he going to be talking about uh, here in this little audio segment? Uh, this is talking about how he sees the shape in the wood that he wants to carve. Um, he loves carving animals, and he says that sometimes you can just see the animal in the piece of wood. And I always find that really interesting because... That's not something I can do. <laughs> no, I know uh, folklorist David Taylor always talks about, you know, going out with boat builders who could, who could see the boats in the trees. You know, they could look at, look at a tree and see the parts of the boat they needed. And that always seems like a slightly magical skill to me. Yeah, it's, not a, it's definitely not a skill that I have. Yep. So here we go with Edward Delaney. Look, I, I, I was kind of recognize the images and shapes of the things, right? Uh, like most of said... And what it was, you look at a piece of wood and you see something into it, like you see an animal, you see a, a weasel or a mink or, or maybe a, 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 a head of a horse from that, right? And you just, then you, and you go from there, like, and you, and of course, like, you start off with a pocket knife. And then uh, as you got a little bit more advanced, then, then I started, I had to make my own, I had to make my own knives because, like I said, they were basically 
Well, you couldn't hardly buy them, and they were too expensive to buy anyway, so you had to make your own your own knives. So like that, right? It was a hobby in the past time. And like I said, you, you create something you like, because I was all interested in, in, I like horses, and I like like animals, I like wildlife, right? So why not carve it, right? That was Edward Delaney talking about images in wood and, and making his own knives. And, and we're going to have a few clips here, I think, that talk about craft and craft traditions to just to start off with. So one of the other things that we're interested in at Heritage NL are traditional fences, because most of our historic properties that we've designated in the province, you know, at one point were part of a property that had some kind of traditional fence. And I know recently on uh, social media, there was a bit of a discussion about a very, very specific kind of fence that goes by a whole bunch of different names here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So Katie, uh, tell us a little bit about who we're gonna hear talk about this fence type. So this is Kevin Andrews. He's from New Perlican, and he's talking about a wriggle fence. Yeah. Not the word that I would use to describe it. I've always heard riddle fence. Riddle fence, yeah. And I think it really depends where you're from in the province. And if you look it up in the Dictionary of Newfoundland English, there's a whole pile of different names. There's a really great video on Munn's Digital Archive that we mentioned earlier. And I think it's called Riglin, Riglin fences. So wriggle fences, uh, riddle fences. Some people call them rod or roddle fences. You know, there's a a magazine in Newfoundland called Riddle Fence that's named Mm -hmm. after the same kind of fence. So Kevin calls them wriggle fences. Yes. Yeah. And, and so in this clip, what's he, what's he telling us how to do? Uh, how to build one. I asked him to kind of walk me through the process of how he makes one. Uh, he made an eight foot section on his property. It said it took him about eight hours to build the, the small section, but he wanted to show his kids how to do it because there weren't any more in the community. And he knew that if he didn't kind of pass on this knowledge that it would soon be lost. So he talked me through the steps on how to put it together and uh, it's really great for um, windbreaks if anyone wants to put one around their fire pit. Well we cut the wriggles and they come out and uh, you need some rails too for the for the wave the wriggles in around. You need one on top, one in the center and one on the bottom. So you take the wriggle and you you bend it and you go into the center one from the top and come out to the bottom one and that uh, blows the wriggle up facing you. Then the next one you put in, you put it in on the opposite side of the centre piece in the, in the tree rail fence. And you weave it the opposite way and put it in through the centre and come down and come out through the bottom. So uh, each one, uh, every second one goes the same way. And there's no nails involved because about years ago they had no nails. So they used to make wooden dowels and they nailed the, the rails onto the fence, drive the wooden dowels in through the rail and in through the stake. And then they weave the wriggles in the way which I just told you, and uh, you end up with the wriggle fence. But now, in the beginning, you've got to put the stakes down in the ground first, six or eight feet apart, however wide you want them. And then you start from there after you get the stakes down in the ground. You drive them down through with a, with a wooden mallet. And then you start from there and put your rails on, and then after the rails are on, then come with the wriggle fences which you weave in through. And, I was uh, I done eight feet and it took me eight hours, so roughly an hour a foot for the build descent. 
Okay, that was Kevin Andrews from New Perlican in uh, Trinity Bay. And we're going to stay in Trinity Bay for uh, a little bit uh, for now. And we're going to move a, a little bit further up the, the shore uh, to Mr. Edwin Bishop. Now, uh, I've, I've met him several times. He's, he's from Heart's Delight Islington. Great, uh, great gentleman. You, you ended up having a grand old chat with him. Yeah, about wooden boats and traditional wooden snowshoes. Um, turns out he's a friend of my father. They used to work together. Um, so we had a lot to talk about. I saw his boat launch last summer in Hartstill Islington. Yeah, that was great and fun. At that time, they were saying, oh, it was his last boat. And then when I called, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm making another boat. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like him. He's always working on something. It's amazing. I follow him on uh, on Facebook, and he's always got a project. Yeah, he said he was making a boat for his granddaughter because it's not every day that a grandkid is going to ask her grandfather for her, her very own boat. Uh, and this one, he's talking about what he thinks makes a good boat. He was always told that a, a cranky boat is a good boat. Uh I think what makes a good boat is the design, uh, the uh, the shape of it, and, and the design is what makes a good boat for me. Like, like I I got a I got a phrase that I used from my father that you probably heard before too. Like, a, a beautiful boat is a cranky boat. Now most people don't want to have anything to do with cranky boats because they feel they're not safe and so on. But for me. And I learned from my father, if you're going to build a boat, make sure she can wear a set of sails and make sure she's a little bit cranky because she'll be a better at a sailboat. So, you know, the curves and the lines, a, a boat, a round-bottom, I build all kinds of boats, but a round-bottom boat for me is a real boat. So the round-bottom, round nice sheer, nice sheer curve on top. And she look, when you look at her on the water, she's, she's round and she's curved and she's pretty. We're going to move up a little bit north uh, to Heart's Content, and we're going to talk to Lori Pitcher. What did she have a chat with you about? Uh, we talked about sealskin um, crafts. So she runs a company called Sealskin Treasures, and uh, they make everything from keychains to hats, mitts, purses, uh, all out of sealskin that they get from a local company and they have a couple of different sewers that they use and it's all local production. Now, is this the same group of uh, seal skin sewers who have been uh, doing uh, equipment, personal protection equipment for, for COVID-19? Yes. When I was talking to her, she said that they were in the process of switching gears so that they could make um, personal protective gear for Eastern Health. That's amazing. I love how people can just take these traditional skills and put them to something kind of modern and useful. That's a, a really interesting story. And I think there was a there was a media article, I think, that came out about her. Yeah, she says she's been sewing since she was 12. So I think this was an easy thing to, to be able to do to help out. So what is she saying in this clip? So in this one, she's talking about um, a lot of people that she sells her product to, like they're looking for seal skin, but she does come up with a couple of people who aren't sure about um, seal skin and the ethics of it. So she's talking about how it's part of our heritage. It's a family tradition for her and, and what exactly the seal hunt is. Well, I think the most important thing that uh, people should know about it is that um, 
because you know you hear so much with Greenpeace and all that kind of thing and and you know like we've been like I said this is seven years now we've been going across the island with our stuff and we've had very very little people say anything to us but I know I've had people have gone on the mainland and stuff and and uh, uh, you know like people say things to them and I mean you know years ago we used to throw paint on people that had seal skin so I think the biggest thing to know is that you know, our seals are harvested and, and humanely and uh, is a beautiful product, is a very durable product, and, and it's truly Newfoundland. So it's, it's a part of our heritage. It's been, the seal hunt has been going on here for a long, long time. And uh, I'm just proud to just to be able to do that and to continue it. That was Laurie Pitcher talking about uh, sealskin work, uh, a traditional craft in, in Newfoundland. And we're certainly interested in traditional craft, but we're also interested in contemporary craft as well, because craft traditions grow and evolve over time. So our next little clip here is from someone who's working in a more modern uh, media, I guess you could say. Yes. Yeah. Um, Michael LaDuke of, well, of New Perlican now, um, but originally from Quebec. Uh, he works in stained glass. It's something that he says he's been doing for 40 years. And did he talk to you about how he ended up in New Perlican? Uh, his wife is from Newfoundland and they retired to Newfoundland just last year. But for the past six years, they've been operating a bed and breakfast in New Perlican. Yeah. And I've seen some of his work and it's quite, it's quite neat. I love his little uh, jellyfish. Yeah, he does a lot of nautical themed work and he says a lot of it is inspired by his wife's photography. I really like the way the light plays on the glass in di different intensities. In the sunlight, sometimes it looks completely different than if, you, if you're in the shade. So that's kind of cool. I really like that aspect of it. I try my best to think about that, which I mean, sometimes I... I finish a piece and hold it up to the light and I think oh my god what was I thinking but probably most of the time I hang it up anyway because the piece is completed it'll sell right away so I have my taste but that's probably not the same as anybody else I mean everybody's taste is individual so what I think doesn't go well together somebody else might really love so we're going to leave Trinity Bay behind. We're going to travel over the Hearts Content Barrens back to Carbonier Freshwater Area, where you had a chat with Jerry Strong. Yes, about Newfoundland music and that connection to our heritage. Um, he is a tin whistle and wooden flute player. He, he says that there's, there's a difference between Newfoundland traditional music and Irish music. Uh, he lived in Ireland, and that's where he kind of got inspired to, to play some of this music. But he says that sharing the Newfoundland traditional music is something very special. It means a fair bit. Uh, it's part of what we are and who we are. And it's, uh, it's important that we keep it alive and... Uh, it, it, you know, to, to keep it going, it's 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 made us unique in the world. I when I started playing, I was playing mostly Irish traditional music and stuff, and I was up in Toronto at a session, and the session is where you're just sitting around in a bar with a bunch of other musicians and you're playing. There's no no set list or anything like that to play. You're just sitting around playing. It's like a kitchen party, and people were saying people were really interested. Those musicians were saying, "Play some of your music now." stuff and, and I had one or two Newfoundland who was not an awful lot and it made me realize that uh, you go out into the world and 
you know, you can hear the Irish music pretty well anywhere. It's very popular all around the world now. But the Newfoundland, the pure traditional Newfoundland music is not that well known. And people are eager to hear it. So it's important that we learn it and carry it on and, and pass it on to others. And it is starting to get, to get a much broader audience now. There are musicians from Ireland that have come over here, gone back over to Ireland now. And they're, they've recorded some Newfoundland tunes that they've learned while they're here. So, I mean, it's, it's important that we learn these and pass them on to, uh, to the future. That was Jerry Strong there having a having a chat with Katie. Uh, Katie, next up, we've got another. We're keeping within the musical theme here, and you you had a chat as well with a gentleman by the name of Ernie Pin. Uh, tell me a little bit about him. So he plays guitar with um, his band Long Drung, um, which is named after an area in Carbonear, and uh, he plays at you know seniors centers and coffee shops and things like that and for him music is just it's about having fun and sharing what he described to me as like the stories about who we are so when he when he plays some of his favorite traditional songs one of the ones he brought up was tickle cove pond it's it's telling us it's like a window into our past and I love that his band's name is called Long Drung as well, uh, because I know Carboneer uh, has been, we had a conversation about this with the, converse, the, the Conservation Corps green team last week in, in Carboneer, about some of these old place names. And the town has actually removed Drung from the names of some of their streets, which I think is kind of a shame. I, I love those old Newfoundland words. Yes, yeah. And that's one of the things that he talked about was, by naming his band that he can he can kind of safeguard that that memory and that word. Okay, so here he is, Ernie Pin. This is who we are, right? And when you think about a song like Tickle Cold Pond, I mean, there. Are, I mean, most people are in Cottonwood now with pickups and snowmobiles and you know, which is great. But every now and then you'll hear someone going in with a horse and slide, right? Uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with a tickle called Pan, but I mean, it's a song about someone cutting wood and he go through the ice with his horse and so on, right? But I mean, that's the way people lived. That's what you did. And if you didn't do that, you had a cold winter, right? I mean, that's life. You know, songs and music should be about stuff. I think next we're going to move into a different kind of music. Um, this one, I think, is about fairy music. Yeah, this is an interview with Florence Hurley. This is part of a, a project that we're kind of running in parallel with the Back of the Trail Traditional Knowledge Inventory. We've been doing some work with uh, seniors in uh, North River, uh, Conception Bay, just north of Clark's Beach, where I live, and uh, some great storytellers there. And uh, we've been collecting a little bit of audio from them. Uh, so this is Florence talking about fairy music and her brother getting lost in the woods. My brother used to say that he never saw the fairies, that he heard their music. He got lost one day in the woods when he was a child. Not too much of a child because he has a vivid, he had a vivid memory of it. Um, he got lost and he went around trying to get his bearings to find his way back home and he heard the music. Now, he was only a child and it was before transistor radios or television or anything like that so he heard music he swears he heard the music so where could it come from it must have been the fairies so he did believe in the fairies you know 
this was probably somewhere in the roads, which we call Lake Taney's Hill. That's where they used to hang out a lot, or in the bottom path, somewhere like that. We're going to stay on a slightly uh, magical, mystical theme. Uh, one of the other projects that we did a couple of years ago was a project around folk cures. Um, and uh, I love folk cures. I don't know, when you were growing up, did you, ever, did you ever hear any of these things about like how to get rid of warts or how to get rid of toothaches? Uh, definitely how to get rid of warts using potatoes. So walk but... me through it. How do, you, how do you get rid of a wart with a potato? I think you just put the potato on the wart. I've never tried it. <laughs> You've never tried it? No. No, I had a wart when I was a kid, but I, we got some kind of ointment from the doctor and it was much less fun than doing things with potatoes. But lots of people had great, great stories. We, we did this project out in Spaniards Bay. So a lot of these stories are kind of from that region. Uh, I think we've, we're going to play two. The first one is actually from Carbonier, a woman by uh, the name of Judy Simmons, who had a, a kind of an updated folk cure, uh, kind of a, a magical way to get rid of arthritis. So here she is. How it came about for me, I never heard of it until uh, last year. I was here at, at, at the theater. I went to some something here at the theater on my own, and I was sitting um, next to somebody I didn't know, a woman, And but we got talking, you know, and... Uh, I uh, had said to her, you know, I had a bad, and probably rubbing my knee, yes, a bad knee, she got arthritis, and I said, yeah. She said, uh, gin and raisins is the answer. She said, I've been taking it for for 10 years. So um, I said, what do you do? So on the other side of me was another woman, and she said, yeah, I take them too. So um, I never did anything, uh, but I did look it up and stuff like that. And... Um, didn't do anything, and then probably six or eight months ago, I spoke to, a, I was talking to a cousin of mine who lives up in Bay Rapids, and I was telling her, I got some trouble with my knee, right, arthritis. She said, did you ever try the gin and, and raisins? I said, no, but I said, somebody told me about it. Well, she said, it, it worked for me. So I still didn't do anything until now my knee's getting worse, and um I've got them uh, in in the fridge now, so you had to. I looked up the recipe just to make sure. Not much of a recipe, so we just said to take whatever amount of raisins that you wanted, uh, you know, in a container, cover them with gin. Now my cousin said it should be uh, Gilby's gin or something. They like the more expensive gin as opposed to the cheaper gin. And I only found out that, that some of the cheaper gins are flavored with juniper extract, whereas the more expensive gins are made straight from juniper. Mm-hmm. But I just took whatever gin I had there that I would drink with a tonic. Yeah. And uh, and then you just let them soak until it, the raisins soak up the, um, the, all, all the gin. And then, uh, you know, each day you would just take, now some people take them like two or three times a day, but most people that I know either take uh, them in the, in the morning or when they're going to bed in the night. Okay. Right? And uh, it said uh, to take uh, nine. Right. That was Judy Simmons talking about her love of gin and raisins. I also love gin and raisins. <laughs> do you, but now do you, do you have arthritis? Not yet. 
well, maybe you won't ever if you can if you continue with the <laughs> the gin and raisin cure. I'm starting be, early. <laughs> you can just nip that in the bud. Now, uh, do you have varicose veins? No. Okay, good. Uh, well, you know, you might, and if you do. Ralph Barrett has the cure for that. Ralph Barrett it was a, a lovely gentleman. He's, he's since passed away since we did this interview. Um, but here he talks about using spider webs as a cure for bleeding varicose veins. So uh, coming back to spider. What spider? Yeah. yeah. Well, this, this, that was a case where this uh, family and, and the lady of the house was having problems with varicose veins. And, and they used to bleed, and she was always bothered with that. And one particular time, the doctor who lived in Harbor Grace was up to the community because somebody had called him because there's sickness in the family. And, of course, when that happened, everybody, almost everybody knew that the doctor was up to see so-and-so. So when the Mercers, this particular Mercer family, heard that, the husband went over to that house and asked if the doctor would come over and see his wife. And he did. And when he checked her over, he said to her husband, what you should do is get some spider webs. Because you go into the old barns, and everybody had a barn, and up in the beams, there, there are lots of spider webs, like almost like a wool, and just just get some of that spider that webs, and and put it on her legs, and then put a bandage around, and that'll help that'll help to prevent the bleeding and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, the word and that got around, you know, cause when he used up, you know, over a period of time, what was in his own barn and. He went to somebody else's barn, and so hence he got known as John Spider. And I think, Katie, that that brings us to the end of our session. If people have um, information or memories about Bacaloo Trail or skills traditions they want to share, how can they take part in your survey? How can they find you? They can visit us at heritagecraft.ca. And they can email me at research at heritagenl.ca. That's great. So if you're living on the Backloo Trail and you have a traditional story or a traditional skill you would like to share, get in touch with Katie. We'd love to include you in our traditional knowledge inventory of the Backloo Trail. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail, and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.